um, the church calendar. It's really? 404 error. I don't know if anybody else had that issue or not, but. It's interesting. That's how I got on, I think. Okay. You see. I'm on my phone, so. Okay. Yeah, we had some issues with the last couple of days, but um, I wonder if it's a Zoom thing. Um, yeah, so before we get in to this chapter, which um, is a very interesting one, I want to remind everybody why the Bible is written, why we read it, and what the goal is. Um, and we heard it in the prayer. And I've, I've said this to you before, but it bears repeating. Whenever we come across something that is sort of um, confusing or uh, seemingly uh, unsolvable in some ways, in terms of the meaning. And we heard in the prayer, we prayed um, that God would open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings, implant us also fear thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. So remember, the Bible is not a book of theology in the sense of it's a set of um, teachings. It is a set of teachings. But you remember when I said to you that it is primarily an instruction manual. It's telling us how to live. Now, sometimes it tells us how to live on how to pray. For example, we have the Psalms that teach us how to pray. We have the Lord's Prayer. Um, it teaches us uh, to whom we put our trust in the Gospels, that we learn about Jesus and who he is and, and what he says and does. Um, and here in, in this final book of the Bible, this uncovering, the, the apocalypse, the taking off of the cover, it's showing us how it all ends, but not just to satisfy our curiosity. Our goal is not to understand the end. So we can go, oh, that's interesting. I, I know what to, um, how, how it's going to go. I know. I have, a, I have a knowledge now. The knowledge is important only in as much as it changes what we do. So it brings us to that spiritual manner of living, both thinking, doing such things, or pleasing unto thee. In other words, when we read chapter 20 or the entire book or anything in the Bible, the question is not, what does it mean, period? The question is, what does it mean so that we know how to live? And that may seem like a subtle difference, but it's an important one. Um, as we get into this thousand years that we're going to hear about in a moment, um, the important thing is not what it means. The important thing is what it means so that we know how to live. And when that's the question, what it means it doesn't have the same urgency on its own. Um, in other words, when we know what, when we find out what it means, so we know how to live. As long as we know how to live, that's all we need to know about what it means. Okay, does that make sense, or is it confusing? Make sense? Good. Okay. So we're going to read what is in my uh, Bible two different sections, but I want to read them together because they are important to hear together. So if somebody would uh, read for us, we'll move this over here a little bit. Um, uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. I can, Father. Thank you. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus 
and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Okay, so two mentions of a thousand years. That's why I wanted to hear all that together, because we heard it twice. So before we look at it from our own perspective, uh, Coley, would you help us understand in brief some of the controversy among those that have different understandings of this thousand years? Yes, Father. Um, as you indicated in your preliminary remarks, uh, the millennium, the thousand years, um, you have those who believe that uh, in premillennialism, uh, postmillennialism, amillennialism, and then there's one group that humorously calls themselves panmillennialist, which means in the end they think everything's going to pan out. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it has to do uh, with um, when the millennium is going to come. And premillennialists believe that we are currently living in the time before the millennium, and that when Christ comes back uh, the second time, he will set up his millennial kingdom for a thousand years, binding Satan, and uh, will, you know, rule uh, the earth uh, from Jerusalem for this period of a thousand years. And then at the end of the uh, millennium, those who are disaffected by Christ's rule will gather together and form a rebellion at the very end. And when Satan is released at the end of the millennium, it is to that group that Satan will go for the last battle, Armageddon. And then after that battle, uh, we, God comes, destroys the, hev the heavens and the earth, recreates a new heaven and a new earth, and we launch into eternity. Uh, that's the uh, premillennial view, but um, amillennial, there are those Protestants who do not believe that, that this passage has anything to do with uh, a specific thousand-year rule. They are amillennialists. They don't believe in a millennium. They believe that we are instructed to live the kingdom of God now and that uh, the imperative is not waiting for a thousand-year rule of Christ. We are to help issue in the rule of Christ on earth and bring his kingdom to earth. And they're not expecting a thousand-year specific rule at this point. And so just very briefly, that's they're, they're just those who hold different positions on millennialism. All right. Well, thank you for that. It's helpful for us to understand how others, others see this. Um, what I'll say in brief. When, no Father, yeah. when does the millennium start? Well, that's the question is... Oh. You know, for, for, from, the, from the Protestant point of view, or at least those groups that, that have chosen, that's what they're trying to determine. So, Cole, am I right in saying that the premillennials say that what's happening now comes before it? What are the postmillennialists? What do they say? Postmillennialists uh, believe that, uh, that we are living in what's called the uh, age of grace. We are living in uh, a millennium of uh, that Christ's rule has come when he came. And so uh, now we're just waiting for his final and last coming. And they don't hold to the uh, fact that there's going to be a literal thousand-year rule after he comes a second time. Yeah. And so I, I think that's a good segue. As, as Orthodox... We don't have a consensus because I think we've stuck to a reading of the Scripture that doesn't let go of that key idea of Scripture as instruction. In other words, that what does it mean so that we know how to live? Um, and so I'll read a couple of different quotes, and you're going to hear probably sentiments from that reflect some of those different perspectives, you know, pre, post, amillennial. Um, but what you often, what you hear is that it's not, that's not the important part. The important part is what do we do? And the, the message of Revelation to this point is very clear. And that is that the side of Christ, even though it's the unlikely side of those who are going to be victorious, as unlikely as it seems in an earthly sense, he's a wounded lamb, um, but 
in the end, he's going to be the victorious one. And the ones that are powerful, that seem to have immortality and limitless power, they're the ones that are so easily um, conquered. So when we get to this passage, there's no real confusion because we're seeing the same theme continue. Because, you know, who's the one uh, being bound for a thousand years, but the one who basically in some ways was ruling the world. And now we see him, and with one angel coming down from heaven, binding him for a thousand years and throwing him into a pit. So it's, for us, it's very, um, it's confirmation of the limited nature of the power of the beast, and more indication, especially with that reign of Christ, for that same period, he's the one who rules. He's the one whose rule is, is the actual rule, the eternal rule. It's not Satan who appeared to be eternal and yet was very weak and very um, temporal. His, his time was very fleeting. What is, what is the pit reference? The what? The pit. Oh, um, let's see. So the, the pit, the idea there is, you know, dungeons were typically pits. They were caves that you would throw somebody into. Um, one of your translations I heard um, said bottomless pit. Mine didn't have bottomless in, um, in one of mine. Mine says bottomless. Yeah. So it, it's a place of, of captivity. When you're, when you're in prison, you have no power. I know it's, it's funny, whenever we play Monopoly, it's always a, a question when somebody lands on, on somebody's property, that person's in jail, you can't collect money. <laughs> now, the rules say you can, but the fact that we argue of it tells you our mentality is that when you're in jail, you can't do anything. You know, isn't it interesting now, one of the, one of the questions being discussed is should uh, felons, should, should prisoners be allowed to vote? And it's hotly contested because you have this idea of if you're in prison, you've lost all your rights. You've been, you've had them stripped away. In fact, in the, um, I forget if it's the 13th or 14th Amendment, um, the one that, that ruled against slavery, that outlawed slavery, what it says is it's, it's outlawed except for criminal punishment. Go back and look at the Constitution. Very interesting that they make a provision for slavery or, or, or indentured servitude, um, slave labor, basically, if you're, if you're incarcerated. The idea is you've lost all your rights. And now we're, we're, we're sort of rethinking that in some uh, political sense. But you can get the natural sense of it's, it's this ultimate punishment, stripping of power, stripping of ability. And it's really sort of, uh, he sort of piles on. He, he seizes the dragon, binds him, throws him in the pit, shuts it, and seals it. I mean, it's, it's just on top, one thing on top of the other about ultimate defeat. Now, let's, let's talk for a second before we get into some of these commentaries about what this thousand years may mean. Um, when we deal with temptation, um, do we sense the devil's influence as powerful or powerless? If you're speaking, Cole, I think you're still muted. Nope, did we lose you? Repeat the question. When we experience temptation from the devil, does it, do we experience it as powerful or powerless? Uh, he might be powerless, but we would be powerful to um, remove ourselves from that situation. Right. And so the temptation, that we, we actually do have all the power to remove ourselves. St. Paul says that, that wherever temptation, you're given an escape. But in the moment of temptation, often people say, well, you know, I was overcome or I felt the temptation. 
because the temptation seems powerful. And what I bring up now, we can imagine falsely that the devil is powerful. When here we're seeing very clearly the power of the devil. He's bound. He is thrown to the pit, shut and sealed. And even when he's loose, he's loose for a little while. We'll get into what these time periods are. But in terms of, of our yeah. understanding of what, of what we do, and what does it mean in terms of what we do, part of what the message here is, pick your side well, because the side of the beast is going to look, and the dragon is going to look very powerful. Uh, but actually, he's the one who's had all his power removed. And the one who looked to be the ultimate victim, Christ, is the one seated on the throne. Father, don't you think it has to be like a reckoning, though, uh, in your own mind to recognize that he is powerless to overcome you in that situation? Yes. I mean, exactly. it's, it's kind of like that's where we do the battle. It's where we do the battle, but because the battle seems fierce, we often falsely conclude that both sides are equally powerful, right? You think about a battle, a literal battle, you know, a Gettysburg or whatever, when the sides are equally matched, they're both coming at it and there's, there's loss on both sides because they're both making huge efforts and, you know, maybe not getting far because the other side is powerful. And often when we're in the middle of temptation, it can feel that we really want to do the right thing. We know what the right thing is, but the power of temptation also feels powerful. But what is being corrected here is what, you're, what you call the reckoning is, in reality, the power of the devil is nothing. We had uh, two baptisms last uh, Friday. Alan's grandson was baptized. And in the new service book we're using from the Archdiocese, they, they've returned the ancient series of exorcisms. Uh, it used to be just one of them. Now we do, I think, three or four of them, and they're lengthy. One's a prayer, and then actually a few of them are actually addressed to the devil. It's very strange to tell you as a priest to stand in church and address not God, but the devil. And if you think about but it... At that point, you're really, not in church. What's that? At that point, technically... You're not in church. You were because you were live streaming. Right. But you're in the narthex at that point, sure. typically, aren't you? Yeah. But, but to open a, a, a service book and say, you know, all these words, and to you, oh, devil, blah, 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 we say all these things. Just, it's, a, it's the only time we do that. And it's, you know, it's a, uh, it's a strange thing. But, but if you look at the words... I think there's, there's two meanings or two purposes. One is we are literally casting the devil and the demons and all of his, whatever he has around him, we're, we're saying, be gone from this child or this person who's drawing near to their renewal in Christ. So we're literally, if there's any influence, we want it gone. But then you think, well, why go on and on and on about it? The, that secondary reason is to remind us what the reality is of the relative powerlessness of the devil versus the power of God. And then to cap it off, after all of that, we turn around and what do we do in the baptismal service? What do we do to the devil? Spit on him. Spit on him, yeah. Breathe and spit on him. You know, it's, that's one of the most insulting things you could do to somebody. Well, Father, yeah. why, was, why was it decided to go back to the ancient prayers? Why didn't they decide to do that for our current baptisms? Um, basically because there was no reason that they came out of the book. At some point, somebody just tried, they were trying to shorten the services or whatever, or we didn't have them translated. So now that we have more people doing research and they're finding that in the ancient services, these were there they're being returned back into the service. You'll notice now when we church a baby, it's much longer than it used to be. It used to be one prayer and then we take the, the baby up. Now there's mm -hmm. several prayers, several blessings. Um, and, you know, we, we can cut it out. We don't, it's not like it's, 
it has to be there, but each of those prayers is actually specific to a different thing. And so the, the Archbishop has decided it's important enough to bring these back and, and let's pray them again. So back to what you were saying a minute ago, as a Christian, as a believer, we, we have the power to disobey Satan, mm -hmm. but a non-believer does not have that power. No, not, not really, because it doesn't say that Satan or the devil is bound from his ability over Christians, just as he was bound. In other words, no matter who we are or what we feel, Christian or not, what we often call the power of Satan really isn't. He really has no power to speak of. Whatever power he has, we give him. So when, going back to that moment of temptation, mm, yeah. in that moment, yeah. that power of the temptation, that's from us. Because we fail. We fall to him. Well, we, 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 give, him, we give him the power. In other words, uh, yeah. we make the sin more enticing, more pleasing, more promising. We put that power into it. Gives him hope. That, that that we sinned or we we followed him and not Christ, it gives him hope that how many more can I get? Yeah, well, I don't know if it's hope because um, he's been told what's happening. So he knows what's coming and he knows the power of God as well as anybody ever did. And even knowing that, he rebelled. So it's not it's not hope. But I would say, um, is it hatred? Perhaps. Is it revenge? Perhaps. Because knowing he's been beat, he can't reverse that. He's powerless to change the final standing of what's going on. He can't change what's going to happen in the end. What he can do is try to spoil that victory for the one who's conquered him. You know, sometimes when, uh, when armies are in battle and one side loses, as they retreat, let's say they've conquered some territory, as they retreat, they will often burn the cities as they're leaving. So they're at, they're at the front lines, they've lost the battle, now they're leaving, they've given up. But instead of just leaving, they burn the cities on the way out. Do you remember when... Um, um, when was it? In the Iraq War, um, as uh, Hussein was, was retreating out of, of Kuwait, remember what he did in, in Kuwait? He set the oil wells on fire. Yeah. So if you think about it, was that a, a strategic decision? Was that going to help him win the battle? No. So why do it? To despoil any prizes of war that come to the victor. Right. So what, what can the devil do against God who has conquered him? And he's seeing his, his uh, coming final destruction. All he can do is try to spoil that as he can. And what's he going to do? He's going to take the best of what God values. And that's us. We are the, the, the height of his creation. We're the 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 center of it um and so what does the devil want to do he wants to spoil god's victory if he can by spoiling us by getting us away from god which is why you know temptation is is powerful because it seems that the whatever we're being tempted to seems good but when you read the prayers of the church and the Psalms, you understand these sins are us being played. We're, we're being used. The devil doesn't tempt us because there's something better for us. When, when he tempted Eve in the garden, it wasn't because he really offered something better to Eve that Eve didn't get from God. He used her 
and used her openness to confusion to say, oh, this will be good for you. You will be able to know what God knows. But really, she was being tricked. He was using Eve. And so when we remember that, we remember whatever we're tempted to, that we're being used. We're not being offered something beneficial. We're being used. And if you think about it, being used by somebody is an awful thing. When we understand we're being used, we don't like that at all. <laughs> and so that's important of us to understand. Whenever being tempted, it's not, we're not being offered anything good. We're being used by the devil in his attempt to spoil the victory that's coming uh, from God. Father, um, yeah. in the epistle of James, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, the writer of the uh, epistle says this, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Yeah. So I simply understand that to mean that um, you're correct. We, when we resist the devil, when we uh, confront temptation, and there's another portion of Scripture that says, God has not tempted us beyond that we are able to understand or receive it. Yep. But with the temptation, we'll provide a way of escape. And so the, uh, the Christian has authority, power, and ability over temptation. The weakness and where we often have to come to you in confession is when we weakly do not uh, access this power or re realize that by resisting the devil, he is forced to flee from us. Exactly. And we fall to the temptation. And I admit that I'm one of those who has experienced that. We all do every day. <laughs> But you're right, and it's, that's why it's, it's so important for us, and what, what chapter 20 is, is really trying to tell us is, no matter what your temptation is, whether it's to sin, whether it's to um, give in and, and follow earthly powers that are going against God and His ways, whether it's resisting and, and not wanting to face a martyrdom, whatever it happens to be, get clear in your mind who's the winning side. And, and when you go into the battle, go in knowing who's going to win and knowing which side actually is powerless. And this is just one more, not the first time, but one more time in, in the book where we're seeing the, in, in the uncovering, the apocalypsis, the, the taking off of the, the cover of the veil. What we're seeing as a reality is that the devil and his forces and whatever he's been able to accomplish it's, it's like a house of cards. It's all going to, with the, to use the word that you quoted there, the, when we, the least amount of resistance, and it goes away because it really is powerless. I don't know if I've told you this before. Um, you know, at, at the camp, when kids go to camp and they're away from home, no matter what camp they're at, there's always this openness to like supernatural things. So camps all over the place they'll tell ghost stories around the campfire or talk about different supernatural things so at an orthodox camp what do they talk about they talk about saints appearing they talk about demons appearing so every few weeks there was a, a demon showing up in the window or a, you know in the mirror or something so and it would come in waves you know one kid would would claim he saw the devil's face and then the next cabin over that happened the next night, you know, as a sort of hysteria would, would spread. So I would go out and when, when, you know, a cabin had this going on and the kids were afraid, I would come and I'd talk to them about it. And I would say some of these things, you know, about how the devil really is powerless and all this. Um, and, and I would say once in a while to an older group of kids, I'd say, do you want to see the overwhelming power of evil? You want to see it in all of its power and splendor and might? They go, wow, you could show us that? I go, yeah, you want to see it? They go, yeah. And I would go, I'd lean in and I'd go, take an extra cookie at dinner. <laughs> and I would whisper, because I wanted them to see, it's just an idea. It's just a little wisp of a thought that we can just swat away and it's not a problem. I, I forget which of the, the saints used to talk about um, when we fight temptation, Temptation always begins as a spark. That's all temptation is. It's a little spark. It's the little glow on the wick after, after you've blown the candle out. And so to 
snuff it out, you just, you know, you, it's, it's just, it's very little. But if it's left to smolder, that spark can start a little flame and that can spread. You can end up with a forest fire. So, but all of that feeding of the flame, that's not the power of the devil. That's what we mistake it to be. It's our power that we feed into that little spark and we fan it into a, a flame. Father? Yeah. Father, can you hear me? Yes. When you took us to the camp, the big kids, and we were at one of the Vesper services in the chapel, speaking of wispy, I saw white smoke swirling around the floor. But that was a good thing. And it wasn't the incense. I still don't know what it was, though. I don't know if I told you that or not. No. Did I? No. It was a good thing. But I kept looking around to see if anybody else saw it. So... Yeah. What do you think that was? Like that happened again. Partly. What was that though? Kids get open to it. Partly because I think, you know, there's when you have an intense spiritual environment, you notice things more. Um, I don't know if I told you the story, but you remember when we went into the library, the village, and there were those portraits of all of our bishops from the past. I don't know if you remember that. Anyway. The Greek Diocese of Pittsburgh used to use our camp before they had their own. Um, actually, they still don't have their They're still using ours or the camp, the other camp, the Carpathian Russian camp. But anyway, they would come and use our camp. And um, one day there was a child that was walking with a counselor across the field from the church. And he looked over at the church and he said, who's that priest? And the council looked over and said, who? What are you talking about? He's like, way over there, across the field by the church. Who's that priest? And the council said, oh, stop kidding around. There's no, there's no priest there, you know, and they forgot about it. Well, then they went on a tour of that library. And this was, you know, I don't know, the next day or something. And they're walking by those portraits, and they see the picture. It was a portrait of St. Raphael. Now, this is before St. Raphael's been canonized. So, and he, he looked at the portrait and he goes, oh, that's the priest. He didn't know priest or bishop. He saw, you know, black robes and whatever and necklace around his, on his chest. And that's that priest I was telling you about. So who knows? But that, that can happen, right? Of course. That can happen. Of course. One time, uh, this counselor, this is after I was at the camp when Father Anthony was there, um, the counselor left the cabin to go next door to ask the other counselor a question. While he's outside, or at the other cabin, the kids start playing around with an iron. And the iron, they're playing around with it, and it was hot, and it hit a kid, I don't know if it was on the face or the hand, but pretty severe burn. So Father Anthony, um, you know, he, the call goes out, the kid got a burn, comes down, they get the nurse, and off this kid goes off to the hospital, and the kids were all so afraid because they saw this happen and they saw this bad burn. And so the council said, let's go to the shrine of St. Artemius. Now St. Artemius is one of the saints who has a shrine at the camp. He was a child saint. He lived in Russia, um, I think in the 1500s. And um, so they all went around the, the shrine and the icon and they were praying, asking St. Artemius to pray for their friend because of this horrible burn. They watched it happen. And it was horrible. So they go, they say their prayers, they go back to the cabin. And then Father Anthony calls back to the camp after they, they get to the kid to the hospital. He's seen by the doctor. Doctor says, these are, it's like a sunburn. It's like a, not even a first degree burn. And they said, well, no, no, no. We saw it. It was really bad. And he came back and it was barely even noticeable. So yeah, these things happen. They happen more often than people would imagine. Anyway, let's hear about this thousand rain a little bit. Different ideas about it. Uh, Let's see. Where is it? This is from St. Augustine. Now, the thousand years can, as far as I can see, be interpreted in one of two ways. 
One interpretation is that this event is to take place in the sixth and last millennium, the sixth day, in quotes, the latter span of which is now passing, and that when John spoke of the last part of the millennium as a thousand years, he was using figuratively the whole to indicate a part. After this sixth day will come the Sabbath that has no evening, namely the endless repose of the blessed. This was one of the ideas that, that was around in the early church, early centuries, that you know, you had, um, they would calculate the age of creation based literally on some of the ages of the figures in the Old Testament. And there were those that, that calculated that out and they say, well, the, the earth was created basically in, in 6,000 BC or 5,000 BC. That was, that's one idea. The other interpretation makes the thousand years stand for all the years of the Christian era. A perfect number being used to indicate the fullness of time. For the number 1,000 is the cube of 10. 10 times 10 equals 100, which is already a square, but still a plane figure. To give it depth and make it a cube, 100 is further multiplied by 10 to make 1,000. Now, it is true that the number 100 is sometimes made to stand for all. Thus, the Lord promised to anyone leaving all things to follow him, he shall receive a hundredfold. How much more properly then does the number 1,000 stand for the whole, since it is the cube, whereas 100 is only the square of 10? So that idea of wholeness, you're going to hear in a couple other of the quotes I'm going to read. But this idea of a, a completeness of time, um, that it's, it's, it's the sum of the whole, that's one of the ideas you get. Uh, let's see. Then you have several, I'm not going to read all these to you, there's pages of them. There's, there's another category that says, don't take it literally. And here, let me read one of these for you. Stay away from such destructive, uh, oh, let me go back one sentence, hold on. I do not know what other idle talk and nonsense when it says the devil will be bound for a thousand years will again be loosed to deceive the nation. Stay away from such destructive teachings. Basically, that's a literal thousand years. What, however, does it say? The prophet says, For a thousand years in your sight, O Lord, are as yesterday which is past, or as a watch in the night. And that is uh, Psalm 90. Therefore, a thousand years in the sight of God is regarded as one day. And in his second letter, the Holy Peter says the same thing when he writes, But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, as a thousand years as one day. So his point there is, don't take it literally. And then he goes on and he quotes several other scriptures um, talking about a thousand years can be as a day or as something really much shorter. Uh, let's see. This is from Andrew of Caesarea. He's one of those we've heard a lot. He wrote probably the most extensive commentary on Revelation. Um, he says, It is in no way good to understand the thousand years referring to a thousand years as such. For when David says of the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, we ought not to understand this to mean a hundred years times ten. Rather, David means many generations taken as a whole. So also in this case, we regard the number thousand to signify either many or that which is complete. There's the idea of completeness again. Therefore, he says, the thousand years are the time from the incarnation of the Lord unto the arrival of the Antichrist. Whether the matter is as we have interpreted it, or the thousand years are 100 times 10, as some believe, or the thousand years are less than this, this is known to God alone, who knows how long his patience is beneficial to us and he determines the continuation, the continuance of the present life. And that's an important point, that, um, that we talk about a length of time. That length is measured by God, who knows it alone, but also specifically, um, I'll quote him again, who knows how long his patience is beneficial to us. And this idea is in different scriptures where Christ extends the time to give us more time to land where we need to land in terms of our uh, our understanding and our life that we work through all of our confusion 
and we get ourselves right with God. What, what do we pray for somebody when we wish them, you know, happy anniversary or happy birthday or some event? What's our, what's our prayer for them in the church? Many years. God grant you many years. That's not just because death is a bad thing. Christ conquered death. Death is no longer the problem. Um, many years is give you time to repent. Give you time to uh, accept the reality of God as the, he really intends us to live, to make the good choices about how we live and who we trust and therefore what we do. There's this idea of, and all that happening with God's patience. Uh, Father Paul Tarazi, one of my so many professors, would always say, when it's time for the final exam, and the students are gathered together, and they're in their seats, and they're looking over their notes, if the teacher is delayed, that's good news, he would say. That's good. Keep studying, keep preparing, because when the time comes, the books are shut. And then the test comes. So this idea of uh, these many years coming as, as a function of God's patience for us. So, and I forget where it talks about um, in the scripture where, uh, Christ, you know, Christ is delayed as his mercy. It's a, it's a merciful act that he's, he's extending his time of return, extending the time until the judgment. Let me find another one here. Oh, this is a commentary, again, on this sort of being loose for a little while after these thousand years. This is again from uh, St. Augustine. When he is let loose at last, there will be little time left, since, as we read, he and his followers will rage with the fullness of strength only for three years and six months. Moreover, the people upon whom he will make war are to be such people as will be beyond overpowering by his open attacks or hidden ambush. In other words, he's let go at the end a little bit, but only with the people who have already figured out he has no power. Let me find some of the thousand-year reign of Christ. Again, from St. Augustine. We are to understand as implied by the words that come further on that these souls of the martyrs reigned with Christ a thousand years. Of course, not yet reunited with their bodies. For the souls of the faithful departed are not divorced from Christ's kingdom, which is the temporal church. If they were, we should not be mindful of them at God's altar in the communion of the body of Christ, nor would there be any point in hastening one's baptism in time of danger, lest one die unbaptized, not, nor in seeking reconciliation, which has been cut off from Christ's body. Why do we go to all this trouble if the faithful departed are not still Christ's members? So he's going to take the thousand years as the time of martyrdom. And that's another common theme, is that this thousand years, this thousand year reign of Christ, is the time, some would say, of the church. The time between... Christ's first coming and his second coming. Now, if that's the case... That's, that's kind of what it talks about, I think, in the next section. Where? The thousand-year reign like, of Christ that we read? Yeah. Or coming up? No, coming up. Yeah. Yeah, this idea, and that's, to me, that's sort of the one that makes the most sense because... One, it, it, it reinforces for us that this time, Christ is reigning, even if it's not obvious. He is ruling over those who want to submit to his rule. And that, to me, in, in, in the church, when we understand our life in the church, of course, Christ is the one who rules. But it's not so obvious as to make it not optional. You know, you think about it, we come to church, we, we see the icons, we, we, we sense that sacredness of the space because God is there, and we sense his, his being on his throne. And, but that's also, if you go outside the church, we live in a world that mostly denies his presence, let alone submitting to him. 
So it, it's a it's a rain, but it's a rain of um, what's the word? Not optional, but uh, it's not an obvious to everybody. It's a rain that you choose to live under. And this will this will give us yeah. In the section coming up, we'll hear a little more about this. Let's. Let's take a few more verses. Let me read verse 5 and 6. The rest of the dead, the rest, let's see here, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power but they shall be priests of god and of christ and they shall reign with him a thousand years okay so i don't have we heard of the second death mentioned yet i can't remember i don't think we have we're going to hear a lot about the second death um and the first resurrection so the rest of the dead not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This kind of supports the idea of, of this being the time of the church, which ends in the sense of when the, the second coming of Christ comes. Um, and it, when it comes is, is the resurrection. And blessed holy is he who shares in the first resurrection. Over such a second death, which we haven't heard about yet, will have no power. So that kind of supports the idea of at at the the second coming of Christ, you're going to have this first resurrection, and they're coming. Notice that they're coming back to life. In other words, they've had their first death. We haven't heard of the second death yet, but whatever it is, it's not going to have any power. But that first death ends, and here it's indicating that it ends for those that are blessed and holy who share in it. And who are priests of God and of Christ, not necessarily literally like me, the priest, but any any priest, any believer, according to, to Peter, his first epistle, we were all called to that royal priesthood. So the first resurrection is the resurrection of Christ? Well, it's the resurrection. Um, let me find something here. Yeah, there's different interpretations of that. I would say that it sort of implies that it's, it's the resurrection of those that have died during this thousand years. In other words, during the first, if, it's, if this thousand years is the time of the church, it's the time of between Christ's first and second comings, then it's it's the um, it's the resurrection of those who died in Christ, and now they're resurrected, and they're not going to ha have a second death. Their first death is the only death, which at this point they're raised from. But there's another interpretation. Um, this is from Ecumenius. He says this. It says is the first resurrection, clearly that of faith. For the second resurrection will be at the universal resurrection of the body. Therefore, blessed is he who shares in the first resurrection. For we will all take part in the second resurrection, even those who are unwilling. Upon those who share in the first resurrection, that is, upon the faithful, the second death has no power. The idea there is that when we uh, are baptized, when we become a Christian, when we enter that life of faith, that that's the first resurrection. And so the second death, we get this, it's a death and resurrection. The second death, in other words, our, our death, our physical death, is not going to have any power. Why? Because Christ will come and raise those, and those who are judged don't die. They live on. Yeah, a lot, a lot of the commentators equated that first death with, with baptism. Who are the reluctant ones that you said referred to? Even the reluctant ones. Yeah. Um, Who are they? 
the unfaithful. So and, it, and in this interpretation, if the faith, if if faith is the first death and resurrection, baptism is the, the main symbol of that, then those who are unbaptized, those who do not want to die to their old life and live to Christ. Now, this, by the way, we have to be careful because I think it's easy to say, well, I, I was baptized, so I'm good. Baptism for us isn't magic. It's not a guarantee. Baptism is the symbol, it's the visible sign of a new life. But if we don't live a new life after baptism, that baptism is meaningless. It's, it's uh, too often, I think, our, our, our people have fallen into this idea of it's almost superstition. Like, you know, often when, when uh, new parents, especially their first child, they say, Father, I want to get the baptism done right away. And I say, you know, what, what's, the, what's, what's the rush? Well, you know, in case anything goes wrong, I want my child baptized. And it's a good impulse. Their, their motivation is good, but I often say to them, say, you know, that impulse that you want to get the child baptized, that's fine, as long as you're going to maintain that intensity when it's time to bring them back to church the next Sunday and the Sunday after and bring them early to Sunday school and teach them in the faith and pray prayers with them. All of that shows that new life. But too often, our families, it's like, well, I want to get the kid baptized, and then we don't see them again. I mean, I would say, this is, this is terrible. I would say that the typical, not in our parish necessarily, but in churches overall, the children that are baptized don't see church again for who knows how long. If ever. Yeah. And what is that? So what is the meaning? What's the, what's baptism if, and I'm not saying how they're judged, that's up to God. I'm just saying, what's the meaning of baptism? You say, okay, we are, we are submitting our child to a new life. We even often give them a new name, a baptismal name. Everything is new. They wear new clothes. We use, um, uh, everything is, is new about their new life. And then we don't have a new life. <laughs> so, the reality of our choices is, is, is as important as the symbol of baptism. In other words, if go back to your question, if they're unwilling, if they're unwilling to have a new life, then they haven't really died that first death. They haven't really died to a, a themselves and are alive, as St. Paul will say, in Christ. That's, that's Christianity. Christianity is not where I claim to be a member or pay my dues, or I do good enough. It is, do, does my life as a Christian look as different as night and day, as different as death and life? That's, that's how different a Christian life should look. And if it doesn't, I'm not, again, not pronouncing judgment. I'm saying that there's a big question mark over, has the person, are they living a baptismal life, a life of being uh, died to their old self and alive to Christ. And that's that's a tougher question. <laughs> and I would even say that everything that we are given in the church, every sacrament, every service, every Bible study, these are all things that are going to support us in this new life. Because left our own devices, we're not going to probably do very well on our own. You know, people say, Father, why do you have so much? Why, you know, why do you preach so long? Why do you have all these different meetings? Why these different groups? All of them are different ways, I hope, of supporting all of our journeys to the kingdom because it's not an easy journey to make on our own. And so my motivation is I want to give everything I can um, realistically in terms of support to people because I know this is not an easy road uh, to walk. Jesus himself said, the way to the kingdom is narrow, and few are those who travel it. And so it's, it's, it's a cross. It's, it's picking up our own crosses. So all that to say that, that it's, very, it's easy to, to schedule a baptism. It's hard to live as a baptized Christian. <laughs> yeah. And it's unfortunate that in the formative years, the first 10, 
12 years, if the child isn't brought into the church, then the chances are of that family living a Christian life in the home is not there. And then they're lost until they, quote, discover it on their own or, or meet somebody or reach out to somebody or the grandparent brings them back or something right. like that. Yep, exactly. As a and matter of fact, Father, been the there case. was a... I'm sorry, was that, Coley? I was just saying, uh, there's a famous quote from uh, Bishop Fulton Sheen, who was the bishop of, uh, I believe, New York or Baltimore, who said, give me a child for the first five years and you can have him after that. And it was a matter of him saying that if, uh, if as Alan was indicating, uh, if you take a young person and, and expose them and teach them and nurture them in the things of the faith, early in life, it is much uh, easier for them to retain those things than having to convert them later in life. Yep. Mm -hmm. we, we've had a committee for the last, I think, two years now looking at, you know, what do we do for our youth? What, what are we doing in our youth programs? Do we want to, for example, hire a youth director? And the more we, we've talked about it, we more realize that, yeah, we need to, uh, providing those, those supports directly to our teens and our younger kids is important. But what you're, what you're all indicating here too is, is supporting our families and teaching them and guiding them on how to raise their kids you know, in a lot of our families, um, you know, the, what, whatever was an unbroken line of education and formation somehow got broken. You know, I wonder, just as one example, how many of our families pray before they sit down to dinner? How many of our families even sit down to dinner anymore as, as a family? You know, these things used to be taken for granted. And for generations, children saw what their parents did with them, and then they just imitated them without even thinking about it. Well, we, we live in a world where the influences on a child and, and a young adult are so varied, and the parents are one of them. It's still a very important one. But they've got every other influence all the time, whether through media, social media, friends, different ideas, what they teach in school, and there isn't that consistency that we used to have at different points. We had it in this country for a while. Um, in the old countries, you tended to have it because villages tend to be grouped together by like-minded people in terms of their faith. You go back to the old country and 20, 30 years ago, most of them were, it was a Christian village, it was an Orthodox village, it was a Melkite village, or it might've been mixed and you had both churches, Melkite and Orthodox. Um, and then there was, you know, Muslim villages. And as people mixed, um, in some sense, it's good because you get to know other people and you lose prejudices that, that can cause all kinds of divisions. But you also lose that natural formation that comes from every other segment of society. So when you have that consistency in, in a Christian village, an Orthodox village, what is taught at home is taught at school is seen in the shop, is seen on the street, and so it's constantly reinforced. And so a person doesn't have to have very much uh, initiative to do something as simple as, let's, we're going to pray before we eat. Nowadays, if a family does that, they are going against the tide in all kinds of ways. And they struggle, even like I said, just to gather the family together, let alone <laughs> to pray. So that's where we have to acknowledge that if, if we're going to have the success we want to have at, at passing on this faith to the coming generations, you know, at least this committee, they're concluding, you know, it, it's going to need a lot. We need a lot of investment of time, of money, of, of expertise, of effort, of focus. Uh, <laughs> Amy just sent me her latest version of the proposal that, that the parish council is waiting for. She's the head of the committee. And, uh, she says, let me know in her email. She says, let me know if I said too many times or too harshly, yes, we need a youth director <laughs> too many times because she's, for us as a committee, it's clear we need everything. A youth director is the, no, 
it's not the end of the, of the effort, it's the beginning. It's just we need to, to bring whatever resources we have because the need is so great to help our families and provide these uh, ways of helping them raise their kids. Well, I think we ran over a little bit, but it was a good discussion. Thank you all. Thank you, Father. Have Thank a good you, rest Father. of your day. And we look forward to seeing you all God willing this weekend. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.